So the gospel is not just what most people realize, which is God forgiving individual sinners of their sins. It's that. But the second half of chapter two is a part of the gospel, and that's how God is doing it. And that is he's reconciling all people together in Jesus, and that's vital. And this is what God is doing. This is the gospel. This is what God has done apart from any good works that we could do. And it's so important that our faith is established there, that the foundation is not what we do. That's what religion broadly speaking, says religion is what you do to make yourself right with God, to make yourself acceptable, to make God love you, to put a claim on God so that he has to bless you. That's religion. The gospel says when you did nothing for God, when all you had to offer was the sin which made Christ's crucifixion necessary, that's when God set his love on you. And that's the gospel. And that has to be the foundation for your life. But having done that, Having talked about you're saved by no works at all, you might ask, well, then do I need to do anything? What's the rest of my life about? What, what, is, what does this gospel of radical grace have to say for ethics? Because if you say you're forgiven apart from anything you do, won't people take advantage of that in a negative way and say, oh, great, I can just live like hell and still go to heaven? Well, the answer to that is no. And the New Testament writers, Paul included, would say, if that's your response to the gospel of grace, that's actually proof you're not saved. That's actually proof that these words that you hear of the gospel of grace has not penetrated your heart. Because a person who truly receives and understands what God has done, their heart melts for God and they couldn't possibly think of living any longer in sin. You learn to hate your sin. You abhor it. You don't want to do the very thing that put your Savior on the cross. You would say, far be it for me. Again, there's a struggle because we're being sanctified. That truth of the gospel is something we're working out. But that's the new attitude. But we need to see that beginning here in Ephesians 4 and continuing the rest of the book, here is the practical implications for those who've received the gospel. If you've truly been forgiven, you truly understand grace, there is an entire new way of living. And the last section of the first half we saw last week was that all this truth about what God has done is actually put into us, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, so that we now actually have the power and the ability to do the things God is calling us to do. So we're not even doing these Christian things, these morals, these ethics, these good works. We're not doing these in our own strength alone. Even these things are born out of the grace of God. And so that power was put into us as we saw last week. So here and continuing the rest of our study, we're going to be hearing what it is you and I are now supposed to do. But it's so important that I ground you again every week in the gospel. I'm not telling you you need to do this or you're a bad little boy, bad little girl, bad little Christian, and God doesn't love you anymore and he's going to be mad at you all week long. No, you're his beloved child and this is how you live in the world. This is how you live in the fullness of God's grace. And so would you please turn with me now to Ephesians 4 and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 together. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. This is God's word. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all loneliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much that we are not made right with you by any works that we have done, but by your grace. We thank you that we who should have died the death of the cross, you took our place. You died the death we should have died, and you lived the life we should have lived. And now in you, we can experience the fullness of God's love, plan, and purpose for our lives. And you know all that we bring with us into the church. You love us, but that doesn't mean we're fine. It doesn't mean we don't have issues and problems and baggage that we bring with us. We most certainly do. And as we're going to see this morning, one of the things we bring with us that grieves your heart is disunity, division, schism, splits. And I just pray that we would be open and attentive to hear your heart, to learn to value what you value, to prioritize your values the way that you do, and that by your power you would enable us to be men and women who help bring unity to the church. We pray this now in Jesus' name and so that he would get the glory. Amen. So one day, there were two men on a bridge. As the first man was walking across, he saw the second man standing in the middle. As he got closer, he noticed that the man was not just standing in the middle, but he was actually over the side of the railing about to jump off. So the first man, seeing the second man, ran over and said, Stop! Don't do it! The second man retorted, Why shouldn't I? The first man answered, Because there's so much to live for. 
The second man said, yeah, like what? The first man says, well, are you religious? The second man says, yes. The first man says, me too. Are you a Christian or a Buddhist? The second man says, I'm a Christian. The first man says, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? The second man says, Protestant. The first man says, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? The second man says, Baptist. The first man says, wow, me too. But are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? The second man says, Baptist Church of God. First man, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Second man says, reformed Baptist Church of God. First man says, me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? The second man says, reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. With that, the first man shouted, die, heretic scum, and pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> I like that one, too. This hilarious joke pokes fun at an all-too-sad reality, which is that professing Christians who are united by a common gospel, because there's only one, are often so easily divided over non-essential things. In fact, according to statistics from the 2010 World Atlas of Global Christianity, so keep in mind, this is now nine years old. According to that World Atlas, there were 38,000 Christian denominations. Not churches, denominations. 38,000. And I would say in the last nine years, that's increased. Now, you might say denomination does not necessarily mean division. Fair enough, that might be true. But how often are denominations, or even non-denominations, born out of disunity and division? And how often do denominations make their distinctives, that is which sets them apart, how often do they make their distinctives the center of their identity rather than their oneness in Christ that unites? I think the Apostle Paul, if he were here, would say, far too often. So what is God's answer to the rampant division and disunity that we see and experience in the Christian church? And I believe the answer is here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And it is the primacy of unity in the Christian church. And so I want to give you Four points that Paul gives us here that point us to the need for Christian unity. Let's start off with verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all loneliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, point number one is the call to Christian unity. There is a call to Christian unity. And you'll notice this is not an individual call. This is not you're called, but she's not, he's not, but you are, you're not. This is a call for the church. Anyone who professes to know Jesus as Lord is called to Christian unity. 
Look at how Paul starts off. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. This is an important point to make. Paul is not only a prisoner of the Lord, so are we. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not do so so that you could belong to yourself. What he did is he bought up all your sin. He bought it all up. Everything you owe to the flesh, to the world, and to the devil, Jesus bought it up. You belong to him now. So one of the ways you can look at yourselves, and there's numerous metaphors, slave, servants, friends, sons, daughters, but prisoner is another. And it's this idea, again, that you do not belong to yourself. You are not free to just do whatever you want. You belong to the Lord. And I think this is so important because this work of unity can be hard. can be painstaking and time-consuming. But if you say to yourself, well, I'm not interested in unity. It's not my thing. I like division. You know, I like sowing seeds of discord. I like finding out what we all disagree on. That's just fun for me. I, I get my kicks doing that. Well, you too, if you're in Christ, are a prisoner of the Lord, which means you are to do God's will, not yours. And it is God's will that the church behave as one. So we are prisoners of the Lord. We belong to God. Therefore, God sets the agenda for the church, not us. This is very important because in a consumer-driven society, very often churches, pastors, leaders, are tempted to let the world and the market set the mandate for the church. What do you like? What do you want us to do? What are you shopping for in religion? Well, let me just adjust what I'm saying and doing to fit that. Now, I understand that, and there's a lot of freedom in business for Christian people to do all kinds of things just like that. But the church is a unique entity. It is quite literally an entity born from the gospel. It's not a secondary thing from the gospel. It is born directly of the gospel. It is the body of Christ. And therefore, Jesus, as the head, he tells the body what to do. Jesus sets the agenda for the church. And so if he says there's a call to unity, it's a call for all of us. He then says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. I I beg you. I exhort you, I urge you, Paul says, walk worthy of the call with which you have been called. See, if you're a Christian, you have a high and holy calling. It is a high and holy calling. It is not lowly. It is not earthly. It is not temporal. It is high. It is eternal, it is holy, it is heavenly. And every Christian, every Christian has this calling. This is not just the pastor or the reverend or the priest or the elder or whoever it is. All of God's people have a high and holy calling. And so Paul is begging us. He's saying, walk worthy of it. And what does that mean? Again, we tend to think of you know, many other things. Well, don't tell lies and you know, don't cheat people and do this. And, and certainly it includes that. But again, non-believers can do those things too. Part of what makes our calling a Christian calling is we pursue the things that are uniquely Christian. And to pursue unity in the Christian church, that who else wants to do that? Does the devil want to see unity in the church? 
No, his strategy from day one in the garden, and it's never stopped, is divide and conquer. It's never changed. Divide and conquer. The world, does the world want to see all Christians united together in the love of God, working together as a single body? Whew. That's scary. Imagine what kind of things could get done if all the Christians in the world loved Jesus, made him number one, above all our differences, made him number one, and even said our differences don't even compare to what makes us one. If Christians could do that, what good could be done in the world? How much more accurately and purely would Christ be represented to the world? Notice he goes on to say, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another. Notice that the only way unity can be maintained in the church is by developing and applying Christian virtue. Notice that Christian unity is not so much a technique or a program. Hey, here's how we'll do it. Here's the strategy. Step one, two, three. It's not going to be done unless we develop Christian virtue. In other words, unity is something only the mature in Christ are able to do. Division is a sign of immaturity. It could even be a sign that a person doesn't truly know Christ. But we all know we have to start somewhere, and we're going to be rough around the edges, aren't we? We're going to be immature. You cannot be born again and instantly immature, or mature. It just doesn't work that way. Some people mature faster than others, that's true, but it's never instantaneous for anyone. It takes time. And so these virtues of loneliness, which is better translated humility, and humility, I think it's, it's one of these words, it's so important, it's so vital. It is, in, in many respects, uniquely Christian, but it's also one of the most misunderstood. And I love the way C.S. Lewis simplified it and made it so clear, and I think he's right. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not about beating yourself up, saying, oh, I'm, oh, you know, I want to be worthy of God, so I'm just a worm. I'm just this horrible, awful, terrible person. Oh, God shouldn't use me. And, you know, maybe I come up to you and I go, hey, you're really, I noticed you're really gifted at this particular thing, and we could use that. And you're like, oh, I'm not gifted. I'm horrible. I don't do anything good. And that's not humility. I remember even thinking myself that that's what humility was, because I, I knew I was prideful, Right? Uh, as a new believer, and I wanted to buffet it as much as I could. And so the only way I, I could do it, because I couldn't just transform overnight, was to just beat myself up and just say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good. Hey, Mike, would you, we, we really feel like when we talk to you, we, we know the Bible better. Would you be willing to, oh, I'm just a worm. I, I can't do anything. I just, I just can't possibly do it. And it's like, if I really think that, then I should say no. <laughs> I shouldn't do it. But humility is not beating ourselves up. It's simply thinking of ourselves less. It means not prioritizing myself over everyone else anymore. That God is first. I want him. I want him more than anything else that I want. I want him above all the other demands of the world and the pressures of life. I want God. God, in Thomas Aquinas' words, is the summum bonum, the greatest good. He's the good towards which all other goods should be aimed at. 
But too often we settle short of the greatest good. We find a lesser good and we make it God. But we want to aim everything at God. Prioritize him. Think of ourselves less. Gentleness, another translation would be meekness. And I like the way Pastor John Corson defined this years ago. And he said, meekness is not weakness, but strength under control. It's not the idea of being, oh, I want to be a weak person that can't do anything. No, it's power under control. You know that you have knowledge that could embarrass somebody. Oh, I get embarrassed. I mean, this happens in Bible study, by the way, all the time. Group Bible study. Heard a story last week. Not at our church, uh, but another story could happen here um, where one person in the group um, shares they think the passage means this, and another person jumps in like, no, that's stupid. How could anyone think that? And let's say this person is even right, and actually in this case, I, I think they were wrong, which makes them look even more foolish, but let's just say they were right. Is that what knowledge is for? Is that meekness? So knowledge is power, and was that knowledge under control? Did you use your knowledge for love, for edifying, for building up, or did you use your knowledge to beat down and destroy? Christians are to be meek with our knowledge, with what we know, with whatever graces and virtues we develop. We don't use it to make ourselves look better and make other people feel like crud. I mean, to be honest, that's, that's one thing that happens in, in many churches, and we're, we're not immune to it is sometimes people that, you know, they've, they've walked with God for a long time, they've got certain things under control, and they wouldn't even have thought that this sin would be an issue, and then somebody new comes in, and, and they're not in that place at all, and that sin is like what they're dealing with every single day, and they fall into it, and then the person who hasn't dealt with it is like, what's wrong with you? How come you're dealing with that? That's weird, and it's, it's, you're using this knowledge not to lift them up, but to beat them down. We are to be meek long-suffering and bearing with one another. I mean, it is the idea of putting up with people. How many times do people just say, well, I'm not coming here anymore. I'm not going to that group. I just can't put up with you anymore. You annoy me. You keep doing that thing, and, and I don't like it, or I, I, I voted to do it this way, but then you did it this way. I don't like it. I'm just not putting up with it. We are to have long suffering, which means, I know, brilliant Greek study here, suffer long. We are to suffer long with people. Does that sound good? Did you sign up for that? I know I don't think I did originally, or it was fine print, right? Like on my updates on my phone. Yeah, yeah scroll, 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 agree, yeah, whatever. It's like, I don't think we all know what we signed up for when we signed up for the church. But believe it or not, that fine print you may have scrolled past is suffer long with your brothers and sisters, which means suffer you will. But we are to bear with one another. And so notice what all this virtue, all these things, we know it's good, but what's the point? Paul here directs it in the very first thing he says. After the gospel, after what God has done to save you from hell, to reconcile you together, gives you the power to live a godly life you didn't have before. What's the first thing he wants you to do? He wants us to be unified. Look at what Paul says. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit. So these virtues, we're not just trying to be nice moral people. A lot of people have that idea about Christianity. It's just, you know, it's just keeping rules. Like, uh, we're just people that don't lie, and we don't do this, and we don't do that, and that's it. It's just a bunch of rules. We have to ask, and people will ask, and I'm glad they do. Yes, but what's the point? 
What are you aiming at? And Paul says here, you know what you're doing with that virtue? You're aiming at unity. And notice, this is very interesting. He doesn't necessarily say create unity. What does he say? He says keep it. Keep it. Other translations, maintain it. In other words, unity is not something we're working to try to get. It's something that we've been given. We've actually been given unity, and a lack of it demonstrates us giving it away or us rejecting it or us despising it. Here is a real, here's some real Greek for you. Spudazo. That's the Greek word for endeavoring, and it, and it means endeavor or to do with this nuance. To do so hastily. With haste. It's always used with an action to be done quickly. So what is Paul saying then? He's saying keeping unity is not something you have the luxury of waiting around to address. If you see disunity starting to come apart, don't wait till it's full-blown and it's too late. If you see unity starting to come apart, like the threads on your shirt, Don't wait around for it. You deal with it hastily, speedily. You get it right then and there. That's actually what Paul is saying. Because if we give too much time to disunity, it grows into division. And then there there comes points where you just can't do anything about it. Humanly speaking, we're past that point. So endeavoring, we have a call to maintain the unity of, of the Spirit. And it's the first thing Paul says we're called to do after the Gospel. The second thing he does, we'll see in verses 4-6. through Paul says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Is there any doubt that the theme of this passage is unity? It's oneness. I mean, does he he need to do anything else for us to get it? Does he need to say it any more times than he has? As a matter of fact, if we pay attention, he, he did something that should make us realize this is a settled issue. He said the word one seven times. Not three, not four, not five, not eight. Seven The significance of the number seven in the Hebrew Bible is seven is the number of perfection. So when Paul says one, 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 he's saying God is perfectly one. Perfectly one. There is nothing outside of God. There's no church outside of God because it's all rooted in the very oneness of God himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a diversity in God, but there is one God. They are perfectly one. So who we are as Christians, that we are one, remember, this is not something that comes to be true later. It is rooted in the very nature of God himself. So Paul gives us here in these verses, 4 through 6, the basis for Christian unity. 
This is so important that we get this. I know some people push back and they don't think we, they're scared to give up their differences. And sometimes you don't have to give up your differences, but you need to reprioritize them. But some people don't want to do that. They want to believe that all these other things set them apart from everyone else. But Paul is clear. There's only one God. There's only one Lord, only one faith, only one baptism. That's it. There's only one. And, and when it comes to this, you are. You're either in or you're out. It's not, are you with me? Are you with them? Are you with this group? Are you with that group? Which is where so many Christians get their primary identity. We don't get it in the oneness of who we are, but rather in the difference of who we are not. This is the power behind C.S. Lewis's famous book called Mere Christianity. And if you've never read that book, I don't recommend a lot of books necessarily, I highly recommend that book. Again, if you've never heard of it, sounds weird to you. It's not mirror, like looking in a mirror. It's mere, M-E-R-E, mere Christianity. In other words, what C.S. Lewis does is he wants to explore, look, if you ask different Christians different things, they'll tell you, I believe this, I believe that, this is what we wear when we go to church, this is how we do it, this is how the service goes, and they talk about how they're different, but Lewis said, I want to know what the essence is. I want to know what makes Christians Christians. And one of the things he did in preparing for that book is he interviewed Catholic priests, Anglican priests, Lutheran priests, and Baptists. Right? He interviewed all them. And what he wanted to get at is, yeah, on the surface you say you're so different, but if you dig down under, you get this one and the same God. One God, Father, Son, Spirit, one Son made manifest for us and for our salvation, Jesus Christ. One Spirit who alone applies the finished work of Christ to the believer and without which we cannot be saved. And that's what he gets at. And that's one of the reasons why it's been such a powerful work of literature. Because he did not focus on what makes us all different, but on what makes us one. And so that entire book is rooted in this very thing that Paul is describing here. That the basis for Christian unity is the oneness of God himself. The next thing we're going to see is the equipping for Christian unity. And that's going to be in verses 7 through 13. Paul says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says... When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far beyond all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, listen to this, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what we have here is is a a section on spiritual gifts or, or gifting. And it's not an exhaustive list. You get probably the most complete list of gifts you get in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It lists more of the diversities of gifts. What you get here is what's traditionally been called the gifts of office. So these are talking about select people who have positions of authority in the church. 
In my tradition, I'm, I'm a pastor. That's the word we call it, but other people have different uh, titles for more or less the same thing, okay? But notice this. What is the job of these persons? Now, the word pastors and teachers is joined together by the conjunction chi or and, so pastors and teachers are not two different offices. They're one and the same. Pastor teachers, that's, that's what they are, okay? And the job of a pastor and teacher is this, to equip the saints, that's all of you, for the work of the ministry. So who does the work of the ministry? You do. The saints do. All the saints do. My job is to make sure you are equipped in who you are in Christ as a believer, sharpened in your gifts, so that you can do what God has called you to do. And I think this is so important because what this means is every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. Every single one. And I find that many people don't realize that. They think, oh, well, you're a pastor. That's you. You, you, do, you do the ministry. I just do you know, secular things, I just, you know, work over here, and, you know, I come, and that's it, and that's it, and, you know, all this talk of unity, isn't that like some, you do that on a panel somewhere, you do like a a unity panel, and that's what that is, and you take care of that, and we don't do that, no, if you are in Christ, you are a part of the ministry, and the ministry, which we can know we're all called to, is the ministry of unity. Here's another important note about this, So God is giving gifts to his people. He's giving more gifts than are listed here, but he's gifted everyone, gifted everyone for service. One of the things we do, partly because we're sinners and partly because we're Americans, Westerners, is we think individually about our gifts. So for many people, when they're thinking of their gift and where I'm going to go to church, it's I'm going to go to a place that will allow me to do what I want to do. Like, I'm a poet, and I need to go to a place where I I can be a poet. And if I'm a painter, and I'm a painter, and I want to do this, it's the gift is about me expressing myself. That's how we think about gifting. But notice the context here. That's not why God has given you a gift. He has given you a gift. Yes, diverse gifts, so that you can contribute to the unity of the church. That's a very different way of thinking about your gift. Because many times people will actually, they'll, they'll get upset. Like, oh, I don't feel like I'm getting to shine here. You know, I'm, I'm a star and you don't even know it. I'm a poet and you didn't know it. You know, so I want to go to a place where my gift is going to shine. If it doesn't shine, I'm taking my gift somewhere else. That is not what a gift is for. God gifts his people to bring unity to the church. And so that changes the question of how we serve. The question is not, what do I want to do that will fulfill me? The question is, what can I do to bless the church? What can I do that would bring people together through my gift? What would, what would heal where, where there's pain, where there's uh, people have been offended, whatever it is? What, what can I do to bring people together? Maybe it's not division per se, but there's just not that that unity that there ought to be. What can I do? What can I come up with? What can I do with my time, my energy, my resources to bring people together as one? What can I do to contribute to that? That's what Paul says your individual gifts are for. Not to highlight yourself 
but to highlight the oneness of God in the church. The last thing we're going to look at is, interesting, interestingly, the safety of Christian unity. The safety of Christian unity. Look at the verses 14 through 16. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, um, I've heard people quote this passage about, you know, watching out for false doctrine in the church. And, and yes, it's true. It's a sad state of affairs. Many churches don't care about false doctrine. Like, it's not an issue. They don't mind. It's not a big deal. They go, ah, you know, you people are sticklers for doctrine, and we don't want to be worried about that here and, and all that. Well, Paul didn't say don't care about doctrine. But he said you need to have the right doctrine. And you need to understand what is essential and what is non-essential. You need to know which is most important and which is least important. And so it's in this context of being careful of false doctrine that he refers to the unity of the church. Notice that doctrinal stability to Paul is tied to the practical unity of the church. It's when everybody wants to have their own opinion about everything. Or we want to be different, not just about secondary things, which I hope we can be here. I think that's one of our values. I want this to be a church where on secondary things, where people normally couldn't meet together, you're a pedo-baptist and you're an adult believer Baptist, you have to go to separate churches, I want to say, not so here. Because to me, biblically, those issues do not divide. Those are not essential so people can be here, and I want that to happen. But doctrinal stability is tied to this oneness of the church. Because if we're grounded in the gospel and we're preserving that, it's people's desire many times to stand out, to be different, to, to come up with some new thing, essentially. That's where heresy comes from. Sometimes it's not, you know, you know, heretics aren't always people that are intending evil and they want to do bad things. It's like, they can just be someone who's trying to innovate or like they're, well, I don't want to say this person's uh, not going to hell. That, that really bothers me. I hate that idea. So I'll just eliminate the doctrine of hell. That's what some people will do. They'll just get rid of it. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to say that. Well, the doctrine of the unity of the church, if you're one with the church and the church is saying all throughout history, as different as churches can be, they've, they've said that there is eternal punishment. That no, when you die, this is the beginning of, of life. And so what you do here really does echo in eternity. And we don't want to lie to people as much as it might make them feel good to hear it that you can just send your brains out, reject Jesus, and you'll just be fine. It'll all just pan out in the end. I wish I could say that, but I can't. Because it's not true. And so again, people's desires to innovate, to change, to meet the desires and whims of the culture are dangerous. But if we understand the doctrine of the unity of the church, we want to confess what the church has always said. We want to say with Scripture what Scripture has always said. 
And if we value that, then we won't just give that up. It keeps us honest. It's one of the things that keeps theologians honest, where they can notoriously be locked away in their ivory tower and come up with all kinds of doctrines and ideas that are like bizarre and strange and and the normal people who are in church just working and trying to live life and be faithful to Jesus are like, what in the world are you talking about? If they too will submit themselves to the doctrine of the unity of the church, it causes a humility where just because I'm into some pet theory doesn't mean I can drag my church through that. If that's a secondary thing, I can think about it off to the side, but I'm not going to impose that on the church. So the unity of the church actually provides doctrinal stability. So in considering this call to Christian unity, how can you and I apply it practically to ourselves? And I would just say two things. Number one, ask yourself this. Do I have a divided heart. Division does not start at the denominational level. It doesn't start at the level of a, of a local church somewhere. It starts in here. Division ultimately begins in the heart. Do I have a divided heart? Let me word it another way. Do you have an undivided passion for God's glory? This is the question I felt like the Lord put on me this week in preparing to share with you. And it was a weighty word. Mike, do you have an undivided passion for my glory? And part of me, sincerely part of me, can say yes. I want to see you glorified, whether it's if it's through the highs or the lows, if it's through this, if it's through that. God, just glorify yourself. Sunday morning when I go to preach, Lord, I pray you would be glorified. That's what people are left with. Not, did I do a good job? Did I do this? Did I do that? Oh, did I speak well? Sure, I'll do my best to do all that. But in the end, that doesn't matter if you didn't get the glory. So am I passionate for God's glory? And part of me says yes. But if I'm also honest, part of me has to confess no. Part of me is passionate for other things. I, you know, if, if, if something is going to cost, if it's going to hurt, if you're not going to get what you want and you're going to suffer and all this, it's like part of you is more passionate for avoiding the pain, right? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like maybe it's not pleasure that you're making your passion, although for some of you that might be it. Passion is my God. I'm passionate for my own glory and for the glory of this experience. But for some of us, I think it's, it's really just the flip side of that, which doesn't seem so bad. But it's, am I just passionate to avoid any kind of suffering, any kind of ostracism? Like, I don't evangelize at work, and I haven't for 20 years, because I'm passionate more for not rocking the boat than I am for God's glory. I am more passionate for not upsetting my my family. I'm more passionate about not taking risk and making sure I've got this money set aside for this later than I am about getting the gospel out to other countries. And I think if we're all honest, we all have to admit that to some degree or another, we have division in our heart. We are not supremely and undividedly passionate for God's glory. And the reason this matters is because if we have an undivided passion for God, I just want to see him high and lifted up. 
Like, that's my mission statement of my life on my tombstone, that Mike lived a life to see Jesus high and lifted up. That's what I did with my life. I think if we believe that, if we set our hearts to that, you're not going to see division in the church. Because when something happens where division is being caused because somebody wronged me, or I don't like this, or I don't like that, or this, this is not the flavor I wanted, or you made this decision, and I didn't like that, I, if I'm passionate for my pleasures... You got division. But if I say as much as this matters to me, what matters more is the glory of God. And I've just been told unity brings glory to God. Oneness in the church brings glory to God. And so whatever I'm dealing with on the micro level, I want to remember the macro, that God has to get the glory. And so this is this might sound, well, this is just, you know, sort of personal and theological. I promise you this is intensely practical. It always begins here. And secondly, do we see any division or disunity in our church? Do we see it between people on a Sunday morning that we know of? Do we see it in a community group that we're a part of or the women's group? or the men's group, do we see any? And if we do, are we passionate for God's glory? Not this person being right, and that person being right, and, and this and that, and gotta make it this way. I just want God to get the glory, and he gets glory when there's unity. So I'm gonna do whatever I've got to do to bring unity there. That's what we're supposed to do. And then lastly, do we see all Christians, all brothers and sisters out there, no matter how different their tradition might look on the outside, if they are a part of the one Lord, one faith, one God, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, if they're a part of that, can I honestly from the heart thank God that they are my brother and my sister? Can I do that? Can I do that? Will I do that? I believe that if we can start answering yes to these three things, God is going to get the glory that he deserves through the unity of the church. Our lives will be transformed and the world will see that there is only one true God and it is him that we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you for inviting sinners into your family. If you were not willing to invite sinners, there would be no church. Help us to remember that. Lord, I thank you that it's by grace you call every one of us saints. Because all believers are set apart for God's glory. And so I just pray right now as we close in this time of response where we are going to sing from our hearts, where we are going to receive communion, where we are going to give back to you from that which you have given us. I just pray that you would do a unifying work in our church, that you would bond us together supernaturally as one people as one church, as one family. Again, not for our sakes alone, but for you. For you, Jesus, because you died to make us one.
So help us to be one in truth and in deed. And I pray this in your name. Amen.